the diplomatic corps Has been analyzed and criticized by NBC and CBS Senators and congressmen are so concerned they can't be said State Department stands and all your coup d'etat has met success and caused this great uproar Who's the real Ambassador. It is evident we represent American society, known for its etiquette as management sobriety. We have all protocol with absolute sobriety. We act these truths and quotes. We're the real ambassadors, but we may appear as foes. We can diplomats in a proper hands are not because of it's well along with all the rituals. The diplomatic corps has been analyzed to criticize the embassy and CDS senators and congressmen, so concerned the cancer state process. Modern crews are meant to cause that great uproar. Who's the real ambassador? Yeah, the real ambassador. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Claire Croft is here in the studio. We've got Claire's book, Dancers is Diplomats, American Choreography in Cultural Exchange, on the table here with us. Um, Claire, thanks so much for coming to the studio and, and talking with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. And thanks also for picking the songs. It was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you tell us a little bit about the song we just heard that started the program? Yeah, so that's a song called The Real Ambassadors, um, uh, Louis Armstrong, Dave Brubeck. And it's a song about, um, in some ways, their experiences of representing the U.S. abroad as part of the jazz and cultural diplomacy program. And it's a song I came across um, as I started to get interested in how artists represent the U.S. and how have represented the U.S. in the past. One of the most important books about that topic is written by a faculty member here at Michigan, Penny Von Eschen, and she writes about the song The Real Ambassadors. And um, reading the book and then listening to the song and both what they say, but even more importantly for me as a performance scholar, how they sing, that super sped up moment, I think kind of gets at the complications of it's these so, programs. And so frenetic. Yeah, really crazy. <laughs> it makes me think, uh, what were they trying to say about America to everyone? Yeah. They were trying to portray some crazy energy. Yeah, that when they sing, and it it's so crazy and frenetic, and also incredibly crystal clear because of their skill, um, which is what's interesting to me about performing artists, is that the, the ways in which they're able to do what they do with incredible subtlety, um, both represents the U.S. and also maybe kind of makes some space to make some other comments about the U.S. as well. It's true, because if you're out there as representing the U.S., as you say, Claire, it's, but you're still, you're an individual and, a, and an artist would be especially aware of wanting to, I think, portray what was meaningful or, or what they believed in their art. Yeah. To not feel, to feel, to still feel authentic. Yeah. And so the nature of like what it, means to represent the U.S., especially in this official way, is really what the book's all about, is I think about how the U.S. State Department sponsored dance, both in the early Cold War, which is the period that that, that song comes out of, but also more recently, post 9-11. And Claire, before we go any further, since we, we've got your book, Dancers as Diplomats, on the table here, I'll just read your, the short bio. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is out, the book is out this year with Oxford University Press, and thanks Thanks to Samara and, and to uh, Samara Staub at Oxford University Press and also Carolyn Dar uh, at Oxford University Press, who, who um, is a, a Michigan 
uh, grad because um, Carolyn wrote Go Blue in her <laughs> email response to me. And I think that's why the book came so quickly. <laughs> thanks. So thanks to everyone at Oxford University Press, especially Carolyn and Samara. Um, and here's Claire's bio. Claire Croft is an assistant professor in the Department of Dance at the University of Michigan. So it's a brief one. So we're going <laughs> to say some more about it and then talk about the ideas that we've started talking about already, Claire. So you went to um, graduate school in Austin. Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, well, I did my I did my master's first in New York at NYU. And that was sort of where this book began. I started graduate school on September 5th, 2001. So I was a couple of days into graduate school, living downtown New York City, um, when 9-11 happened. And I was uh, in performance studies, so sort of shorthand, like theater meets anthropology, um, but very much as a dance scholar. Um, And, you know, among all of the myriad of traumas that 9-11 produced for me, personally, it was hard to figure out, like, why would I be studying the arts at such a fraught political time? And I thought about lots of things I should be doing. Should I drop out of school and go to law school? Because I was interested in politics and policy then. Um, and so the the idea for the book didn't come out until maybe like six months or so later. But I always feel like I was sort of born of that moment and trying to think about the relationship between arts and politics and the relationship between U.S. and um, the world. Yeah, because in in our lifetime, that's when it became fraught again. So the, we we were sort of in the Cold War time period to know about it from history class, et cetera. But um, it seems like September eleventh, two thousand one, was a time that then I think as Americans, everyone had to reckon again with our our position or relationship or responsibility on the world stage yeah for sure i mean the cold war ends when i was in middle school and i think there was a bit of a sense of like things were better that scary thing was over i'm obviously like glossing history in a really superficial way when i say that but you know this sense of feeling safe um and also you know i think the u.s as a whole takes a real turn inward perhaps unless thinking about a global perspective as the cold war fades in the early 90s and so you know i think 9-11 for me as someone who knew i wanted to write about this notion of america is um being thrown back into the realization that american studies has been teaching us for a long time which is that you can't think about the u.s separate from the rest of the world and it's interesting that you said, used the word notion of America. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, what was partially so interesting in doing the book was, so I traveled around and interviewed these dancers who were... Over 70 dancers. Yeah, a lot of folks. It was amazing. Um, and amazing that people were so generous to say, sure, I'll sit down and talk to you about that time I went to the Soviet Union in 1962 and oh by the way we were dancing and like the Cuban Missile Crisis happened um well, you say in the book <laughs> that's amazing actually but you say in the book Claire too that part of the um the how dancers like 
um, pass on like the the uh, information. It's it's also like storytelling is a big part. Uh, it's an oral history in part of the community. So maybe this interviewing that you're doing is actually just a natural like you were tapping into something that's already part of that community. Yeah, I mean, I fell in love with dance history because older ballet teachers told stories about how they learned roles and who they danced with and where they performed. So I didn't think of that as dance history or oral history, but it was so fascinating. Um, and I really, I think kind of throughout my career, I've been really interested in talking to artists and hearing their perspectives on what they do and, and having them tell the stories that I know are part of rehearsal processes and kind of sharing those with the broader public. So what was it like, Claire, when the, the dancer that you were talking with said, oh, yeah, I was on stage during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Um, well, I think part of what In was, the Soviet Union, right? Yeah. With, yeah. Yeah. So New York City Ballet um, is one of the groups that I focus on. And they were on an eight-week State Department tour of the Soviet Union in 1962, they um, spent the big first couple of weeks in Moscow performing, and in, I think, maybe the end of the second week they were there is what we now think of as the Cuban Missile Crisis. And one of the things that was so interesting to me and that I write about in the book is that to me, I was like, oh, my God, you were there during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Like, where, how were you scared? And, you know, what did you think was going to happen? And and they said, yes, of course, I was scared, but also I was dancing eight times a week and worried about my two-year-old who is back home. And so how these things that in retrospect, um, you know, as we look back, it's like, oh, it's this like really important event and we know it is this particular entity, but also to remember like people live through historical events. And so what we think of as history is also populated with people trying to like make it through their daily lives. But two, it was really fascinating to hear about them dancing on stage because it kind of undoes this, like, the U.S. and the Soviet Union could agree about nothing and, you know, we're going to end an assured mutual destruction. But also, Edward Valella was dancing one of the first ever encores that happened in New York City Ballet on stage in Moscow at that moment as the Soviet, you know, ballet fans are, like, on their feet cheering him on. And that, so that speaks to connection and bridging and something where you think, oh, you can't annihilate that. And that, you know, these stories sometimes of polar opposites, there's always a, another complicated layer to it. <laughs> <laughs> How is that then putting the book together, finding these complicated layers? I mean, I think that's what's fun about scholarship, that there's no one story to tell. Um, and I like thinking about my work as sort of taking up a cultural object and thinking of all the different ways you can look at it. And what's amazing about getting to be in conversation with these 70 plus dancers I interviewed was that I immediately had 70 plus ways of thinking about what constitutes representing the U.S. abroad as an artist. So for this um, project, Claire, you also mentioned off air that before you went back to grad school, you were a journalist. Where does that fit into this this time frame of yours and, and the making of the book? Yeah. Um, I always wanted to be a, 
a, someone who wrote about dance. I wrote my first dance review when I was, I think, 14. What um, was it of? Like, where, it was, where I, were you? <laughs> I grew up in this tiny town in rural Alabama. And um, my dad introduced me to the idea of journalism and writing. And I, I guess I, like, wrote for the middle school newspaper. And at some point got in my head that I should ask the local newspaper to let me review dance that came to town. And so this ballet company from Ohio came to town and, and I reviewed them at 14. I'm sure it was horrible. I don't think probably... Is any... it on microfiche? Should we go back? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I'd want to see it. But yeah, that's how I started writing about dance. And but that's... What, what brassiness to be like... Hey, I think, just so you know, I'm writing for my school newspaper, middle school newspaper, and maybe you might want me to cover this when it comes to town. Like, Yeah, I interviewed this, this the artistic director for like three hours. So I think that was the first time, which is not how you should do a performance review, but I didn't know. And uh, she very, very kindly sat there and let me ask her questions. And so that was, that was the first time I talked to an artist and I, I loved doing or the first time I interviewed an artist and so um as I continued on doing journalism uh, writing about artists after talking to them is something I've been really passionate about and yeah so was that something you did when you went on to like high school and college Claire did you keep yeah I wrote about these reviews or dance in college some and was a dance history major and then um started interning at the Baltimore Sun when I was in college um, so after college, I wrote for the Baltimore Sun, and then a couple years later, moved to D.C. and wrote about dance for the Washington Post. Um, and then while I was in, doing my Ph.D. in Austin, I wrote about dance and theater for the Statesman. So I really love writing for daily newspapers. I'm sort of sad people don't pay attention maybe to dailies in the way they were. I loved like writing about dance and having it show up on people's kitchen tables on Monday mornings. Right. Maybe there's a way to still do that. Yeah, I mean, there are great people out there doing it still. Everybody thought dance criticism was going to go away, but that there's a lot going on on the Internet that we never dreamed would have happened. Yeah. So maybe is that something that you see that you might... With, not that I don't know if you have any extra time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a, a professor and as like a, a dance scholar, I don't know. Is that something you might... Um. You know, we'll see in time, like, where the next projects take me. I mean, I think one of the things I'm most excited about is I now have a lot of um, students and former students going on to write dance criticism. So folks like Tarashina, who helped me write the book and did all did a lot of archival work on my behalf, who's a Michigan alum who's now writing for Dance Enthusiast and other um, publications in New York. So even if I'm not doing regular dance criticism, I feel like lots of good people or are. even coming from Ann Arbor and doing it. Yeah. And it's all, it's part of, you're in that community. Yeah. And some people have you to thank for getting, I guess, becoming part of it too. Well, I think it takes, you know, my dance teacher when I was 16 said, you know, there are people who write about dance. And, you know. So I'm, that was the moment, was it? Yeah, totally. Totally. Because she knew I loved writing and she knew I loved dancing. And it just kind of took someone saying like, well, you can write about it. So, I mean... I think that's important to what, remind people you can write about the arts. And what's her name? 
Marianne Murphy. Shout out to you, Marianne. <laughs> We're going to take a short break. Today on the program, Claire Croft is here. Claire's book, Dancers as Diplomats, American Choreography and Cultural Exchange. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be right back. There comes a time when we heed a certain call, when the world must come together as one. There are people dying, oh, when it's time to lend a hand to life, the greatest gift of giving everyone <laughs> we are the world we are the children and today on living writers claire croft is here claire's book dancers as diplomats american choreography and cultural exchange and we're also talking about music and cultural exchange like as we started the program claire with your first song the real ambassador that you chose for today and now <laughs> we are the world um so let's talk about this song <laughs> And roller skating. So, and your dad, actually, I guess first. Uh, yeah, I loved the song when I was a kid. My dad moonlighted as a country music DJ, and I hated country music, but occasionally he would play We Are the World, and I was like, oh, thank God, a break, and it's so good. And I also have a very visceral memory of the song as being really good to roller skate to. So, would you be at the rink? I think so. Just out and yeah. maybe playing it. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, ballads for roller skating, I think, the are best. really, really good. Um, you must have been yeah. a really good roller skater, too, then, because as a dancer, if dancing and balance and... I'm super clumsy. Yeah. Da I think dancers are really clumsy. Like, you know, we... we If you train in, like, ballet, which was what I grew up in, you know, they, they do clear the room of all the furniture, and often, like, the other people have good spatial awareness and aren't running over you. So, so yeah, it was tricky. It so was don't tricky. make assumptions. Yeah, I guess not. 
I guess not. I mean, I also now write about dance more than I do it, so that might also be a clue, too. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I loved We Are the World. And when, I was, when you asked me to think of songs for this, I started thinking about how I was introduced to the notion that artists could make political change. And I think We Are the World might be the first time I thought about that. Um, that said, I mean, the song's incredibly paternalistic and kind of indicative of something I write about in the book a lot, this notion that like, the U.S. would quote-unquote make things better, that this was really the way to do things. And like the exportation, exportation of empathy, like yeah. being careful of this. Yeah, and this sort of, you know, being overwhelmed by feeling of somehow helping, um, which, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to feel, but... Um, it also says a lot about how you understand yourself in relationship to other people if you only understand them as sort of in need of your help. Um, so, and then a nation doing this yeah, as well. Yeah, so this feeling of like, we are the world, we'll, we'll help. And, and also, but I, there's something incredibly earnest about the work those artists are doing. And two, actually, as we're listening to it right now, one of the things I was thinking about is you, is, um, you know, we, we hear many artists in this, but some of the notable voices in it are African-American musicians. And I think this notion of black sound and in my book, black dance, um, are something very much that the U.S. is trying to export, particularly in the 60s and 70s, as the State Department is trying to counter the images of violence being done against black protesters across the U.S. with um black dancers, particularly the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, which I write about quite a bit. So maybe this would be a good time to talk a little bit about that. Like, how does um, a performer, an artist who's tasked um, and funded to represent the U.S. go out into the world and also be honest about experience that um, is maybe not part of the agenda to show the world? Yeah, I mean, many of the dancers that I interviewed were negotiating um, their own personal relation or personal identities in relationship to the nation, and you know, making that negotiation with incredible skill and brilliance, and I don't know, we could call it slyness or smartness. You know, they would go on stage, and yes be demonstrating sort of inclusiveness by ver the very fact of an audience saying like, oh, well, this is what the American government is behind, but also to the incredible critiques that are embedded in works like Alvin Ailey's Revelations, um, which, you know, also in addition to celebrating African-American culture is also looking at the history of slavery and how that's very much part of an American experience. So, um and the dancers are are embodying that in all kinds of nuanced ways, and they know they know they are. It's not as though that's somehow an accident, right? It's part of. Uh, and so, when people were when you were interviewing them, Claire, is this something that um, when you say it's not an accident, is it something that they wanted to talk with you about when they were thinking about this particular time in their lives? Yeah, for sure. One of the stories in the book is. Um, 
about my interview with Arthur Mitchell, who was the founder and longtime artistic director of Dance Theater of Harlem and was also the only black dancer on New York City Ballets tour in 1962. And he talked about Soviet audiences being incredibly um, excited about seeing his performance. It was really a breakout moment in his career, dancing George Balanchine's um, Agon, which famously Mitchell danced with um, two different white ballerinas. And so this interracial pas de in 1962. But he also talked about coming home and his hair was all falling out and it was due to stress. Yeah, so... You know, people are working through um, the performance of race on their own bodies and through their own bodies at the same time that they're also making radical statements from the stage and representing the U.S. all at the same time. Claire, can you say a little bit about why dance as performance is particularly um, like the possibilities of it go, like as a as a going out as a representation of America because like, I guess what comes to mind in um, is, is sort of that it dances its own language mm-hmm. right and so there's a way that the, the physicality and the movement is what's conveying the story yeah I mean I think Sometimes people are taken with the notion that dance is a universal language. And one of the things I wanted to do with the book is push back on that idea. And dance, like any art form, like any mode of communication, is always grounded in the place where it's created and the people that are embodying it. Um, Well, you mentioned even modern dance, the U.S. State Department wanting to export this, and when they sent it, to Germany, it was so well received because, well, actually, modern dance, as it was being sort of defined by the U.S., had already been happening on stages there. Yeah, one of my favorite pictures in the book is Jose Limon being in Germany um, on a State Department tour, you know, there supposedly representing this quintessentially American form, (laughs) and he's having dinner with Mary Vigman, who's this matriarch of German modern dance. And while Lamone and Vigman don't have tremendous amounts in common in terms of their exact artistic expression, but, you know, German audiences were seeing lots of what we would think of as modern dance. And so it was American, but it wasn't quite as American as it was getting billed as. It wasn't supposed to be some sort of mind-blowing alternative or something. Totally. Right. (laughs) So it seems like there are these moments like, of these these stories when you're um they're like these discoveries almost so as a um so when you were talking with all the different dancers claire how were you also um i don't know how was that feeding into and interconnecting with the other research you were doing for the book did the interviews guide sort of where you went in archives or so yeah i spent a lot of time in the state department archives which are in fayetteville arkansas i joke with people that uh the next book i write i'll think about where the archives are located and maybe i'll need to go spend all my summers in europe or something but um i actually wound up like loving being in fayetteville all the time um so i spent a lot of time one of the great things was so the artists were chosen for these um, but the Cold War era tours that I write about by a 
panels of artists and different administrators, arts not administrators. By, not by application. No, no. And um, so their minutes from all these meetings, really, really detailed minutes. And so I was able to read the discussions that they had. And, and so really got to learn about why they made the choices that they did, which we don't often know when we hear like, oh, such and such artist got such an award or grant. Um, we can maybe imagine why, but um, yeah, the, the minutes were incredibly detailed. So that was a really important part of the research for me. But I was always moving sort of between the archive, these sort of official government archives, and building the archive of the dancers' voices. So do you have that somewhere now, Claire? Like, do you have these vo- like these interviews of yours, these au- audio or video Yeah, I did them all audio, yeah. And do you have them archived somewhere? I have them. You know, I didn't start the project thinking about... Oral history. Right. Well, I was sort of thinking like, of it as, like, using oral history techniques, but I never... Th- I didn't begin by thinking about sharing the interviews publicly. And at some point I was kind of glad I didn't because I was able to, I think, have a different kind of conversation and where it was possible be in conversation with the artist about what they wanted shared from the interview and what they didn't. That's interesting because it makes me think what you said earlier about... um for example, if you have 70 different interviews, you have 70 different ways of telling the story, mm-hmm. right? And it seems to me then that you, as as the person who's actually the writer of this book, it's it's you're making it your story to tell because you're the lens. And so you're choosing these pieces. Yeah. And what to weave within it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, sometimes at the end of interviews, I always ask people if they want all of the interview to be something I draw from or if there are parts that they don't want. And for the most part, people say, sure, take it all. Um, But, you know, some people... When did you start doing that? Yeah, what was the reasoning for having um, that as part of your practice? That was really part of my training in oral history. Um, I had a great professor at University of Texas, Martha Norkunis, who... um, was a a really great oral historian herself, and I worked for her, and that was just part of what she taught us to do. And it made a lot of sense to me. Because, you know, like, you ask people questions on the radio all the time, and we're showing up saying whatever out in the world. But, um, you know, sometimes I'm sure we all think, oh, wow, I said that out loud. (laughs) So... (laughs) I, yes, and Claire, I often say that <laughs> on a weekly basis. Oh, okay, we're going to take a short break right now. Great. Today on the program, Claire Croft is here. Dancers as Diplomats, American Choreography and Cultural Exchange, out this year with Oxford University Press. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be right back. Riding on the city of New Orleans Illinois Central Monday morning rail Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders Three conductors and twenty-five sacks on mail All along the southbound Odyssey the train out at Kentucky and rolls along past houses, farms, and 
yards full of old black men in the graveyard of a rusted automobile. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Claire Croft is here in the studio. Um, Dancers as Diplomats, American Choreography and Cultural Exchange. Claire, why did you start dancing? Let's talk a little bit about dance, and then we're going to talk about writing. (laughs) Put on the writing hat. (laughs) Um, I guess, like lots of folks, dance has been part of my life always. One of my earliest memories is my mom taking me to a ballet class when I was, I think, about three. And we sat next to each other and watched the class, and I remember her asking me if I thought I would like to do that, and I said yes. And so I started dancing when I was three. And I've been dancing ever since then. And it so it began with ballet. Has it always been ballet for you, or no? I got exposed to modern when I was in college, and the incredible pleasure I found in dancing barefoot was so, and being able to take space in a really different way. And also, I went to undergrad at a small college in Baltimore called Goucher College that had a dance history ensemble. So. We did, we learned Renaissance and Baroque dance and a whole myriad of social dances. Uh, the Charleston was my favorite. Um, so a lot of social you went, dance. Is that why you went to Goucher? Because you knew it had it or was it just happened? You yeah, know, it I wanted, was just well, like serendipitous. I knew I wanted to write about dance and so I wanted to be somewhere that would let me study dance history and that's not always something that undergraduate programs emphasize. And so Goucher had that, and it was a small liberal arts college, which is where I wanted to be. And did you say social dance? Yes. Could you say more about that? So uh, I mean that in terms of dance that's not for the concert stage. And so we did, in fact, in that particularly ensemble, like perform it on stage. I, I see. But okay. um, it was, you know, dance studies has sometimes veered towards studying concert dance more than all the many, many dances all of us do all the time in our lives. And so it Which was... Which is really of more of the people of the culture in a way and so important to history, you would think, of expression. Yeah, and like the ways that, 
you know, some people say like, oh, are you a dancer or not? And people answer based on whether they've performed on stage or not. But I think lots and lots of us are dancers. And even if it's a kitchen dancer or totally. Are you a kitchen dancer? (laughs) Yes. It used to be more out on the floor with some wrong-headed aerial maneuvers, but (laughs) kind of keeping that at a minimum these days after twisting my ankle. (laughs) Dance is dangerous. Yes. Did you ever like dabble in in sort of breakdancing as well or study any breakdancing? No. 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 Just thinking of that recently. So side, that was a side, (laughs) side um, question. But yeah, so social dance and dance history. And when you, um, with dancing, Claire, like, is it something... um, as a as a professor now, is it how are you using movement in your do you use movement in your courses and Yeah, I do quite a bit. So I teach in the Department of Dance here, which is a BFA and MFA program, and I also teach in the Inner Arts program, which is an interdisciplinary arts program. And um yeah, we move a lot in my classes. Um dance history to me is something you learn through dancing and through reading and through writing and through talking. So one of the my favorite things about being a dance and performance scholar is that it reminds us there are many ways to learn things and there are many ways to think. Um, universities tend to emphasize reading and writing, two things I obviously love a lot, but I think being in motion is an important part of learning. So yeah, we get on our feet and try things out and think about how space has meaning. If you're standing close to someone or far away from someone, those things have meanings. Um, and are also ways that meaning can be manipulated and changed. So, yeah, we 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 move. I love the idea of that and the, the being in motion aspect. It get, gets me thinking, like, how could, like, bringing it to a writing classroom or so, like, just this idea. And, and how you also said it was so, um, to you... Uh, well, this was not your words, so but mind blowing is not what you said. But like to to, to find like taking up space, like taking space, yeah. not taking up space, but taking space. I felt like that was so empowering to hear you say that. Yeah, absolutely. Like how we learn to use our bodies to draw attention to ourselves or to absent ourselves, um, and. This is where I think dance studies allows us a way to look at all of our everyday practices. Um, often people tell me, like, oh, I don't know anything about dance. And I say, well, like, well, if somebody crossed their arms and looked at you <laughs> and you had some reaction to that, a kinesthetic reaction, a visceral reaction, or one in which you, like, oh, thought, like, that had some meaning and decided you knew something about that person. I mean, that's the beginnings of dance analysis yeah interpreting movement mm-hmm. right which we may be doing instinctually all the time but we're not labeling it or naming it yeah perhaps. it's actually part of what we do as as animals yeah. <laughs> as people <laughs> we are the world well claire will you um because we've been talking about your book your fabulous book dancers as diplomats would would you mind reading um a section of it so we can hear how the writing is moving sure your ideas on the page so i'll read a little bit from here at the beginning um the book opens with one of the more contemporary examples in the book so since uh 2001 uh the state department began thinking about what cultural diplomacy might have to to do with foreign policy today And, and in 2010 brought into existence this program called dance motion usa 
um, which has now had about six years of funding, I believe, and sending uh, American dance companies again abroad. So this is a passage from a section where I'm talking about ODC Dance, which is a company based in San Francisco, performing in Burma in 2010 on the first round of tours. The company gets to Burma. They're um, told that they'll have this performance... But it might not be so well attended because the Burmese government will throw up a number of barriers to people getting there. So that's kind of where we are, and I'll just start. So when the members of the ODC company told me the story of what they experienced in Mandalay, they spoke with such excitement that they physically enacted parts of the story and interrupted one another to interject even more detail. Dancer Jeremy Smith remembered the scene. Quote, all the chairs were filled and people were standing, wrapping around the stage as well. It was a regular proscenium stage without wings on the side, but people were just standing wherever they could. There were people standing outside the complex, peeping through the fence. The Burmese government's propaganda campaign seemingly had not deterred any audience members. Other dancers saw audience members perched in trees and in the stage rafters. The State Department estimated the crowd at about 1,400 for the one performance. Dancer Dennis Adams said he knew something transformative was happening when even the Burmese police stationed around the complex dropped their vigilant stances and turned to watch the show. With the ever-growing audience, the program proceeded without incident until the final piece, an upbeat number, 24 exposures, choreographed by the company's artistic director, Brenda Way. Electric service in Burma is erratic, and the American Center staff had warned the dancers that the center might lose electricity during the show. If this happened, the center could keep the lights on, but the technical crew would have to scramble to bring generators online to power the sound system. The company had agreed pre-performance on a backup plan, deciding that if necessary, they would freeze until the music returned. When the company got to 24 exposures, the accompanying App Appalachian bluegrass music began, but then suddenly cut out. The dancers froze, but as the silence continued, they realized the music might not be coming back at all. As the silence grew interminable, Dennis Adams heard the sound of clapping from the back of the stage. Daniel Santos had begun clapping the rhythm of the piece. As the group recounted the story to me, Adams begins clapping, creating a sound that echoes forcefully in ODC's small office, but that must have just been a tiny noise in an outdoor theater filled with 1,400 people. Suddenly, inexplicably, the clapping grew louder and louder. The entire audience had joined Santos, cla clapping along to the beat he had set. Now there was music, but it was not the piece's actual music. It was the rhythmic sound of what dancer Kuleba Rang described as 5,000 hands working together. Vanessa Thiessen, another dancer, danced the rest of 24 exposures with tears running down her face. She recalled, quote, It was amazing to hear all those people who didn't know us, who didn't know what we do, fully there and fully accepting. I seriously think that experience right there is what the program is all about. ODC has arrived as a symbol, an American group performing for foreigners. Through live performance, a collaborative space emerged, exceeding the frames of national difference that were also present at the performance. Thank you, Claire. Thanks. That's, and that's from the introduction. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty powerful moment how how you how you write it and how like, I imagine it was told to you as and and how they recount it with tears or even during their performance once yeah. a dancer said and so is that 
part of the reason why, because it's a more recent, it's from like Dance Motion USA, so more recent in uh, as a cultural ambassador uh, company. Um, is that why you chose it for the introduction to sort of be a part of setting the, framing it, framing the book? It was such a powerful story when I heard it. And, you know, when you're doing interviews and you think like, oh, this is the good part. Yeah. And so I knew it was an important story, but then, and maybe this gets it a little bit about my own writing practice. Um, I've been really lucky throughout grad school and since to always be in amazing writing groups with people. And so that story was actually the end of chapter four in an earlier draft of the book. So way, way far into the book, the very end of a chapter, and um, my friend and colleague, Rebecca Hewitt, was one of the people reading the drafts, and she said, the story's way too good. And so then it became the beginning of chapter four, and then it became the beginning of the book. Thanks. We're going to take a short break. Today on Living Writers, Claire Croft is here. The book, Dancers as Diplomats, American Choreography in Cultural Exchange. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be right back. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Claire Croft is here. Dancers as Diplomats, American Choreography and Cultural Exchange. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about <laughs> the Elton John number that we just... Why why this one, Claire, when you were picking the songs? Well, sort of, I, I chose the Tiny Dancer and the one you heard before, Willie Nelson singing City of New Orleans, kind of for the same reason. Um, Tiny Dancer, I love the song, but I also love the singing in the movie Almost Famous when like the band's all singing Tiny Dancer on the bus. And City New Orleans also, of course, is about traveling. And I'm interested in how these dance pieces, I love writing about performance, but I love thinking about how performance kind of moves around on these tours. You know, in dance history, we're often like, oh, this is this great piece and it pr- premiered in such and such time. But 
really like these pieces go on and they change and so this notion of how dance moves around and how dancers move around and how the experience of touring itself creates this kind of community that's really navigating all these layers of identity from the individual up to national and international identities so yeah but I also love that scene on the bus where they just all burst into song it is great that one. Uh, no, it's nice to have a little Elton John. I don't. I don't know that Elton John gets played enough on WCBS. <laughs> Maybe he does, and I, I just I don't know. But anyway, thanks for choosing that one, and um, and and so thoughtful in the way that you approached the music selection for today, too, Claire. Really, so thanks. Um, well, let's talk. So, you writing has been part of your life, as you were saying, since you were. 14 you've had published pieces right out out in the world and a journalist for the baltimore sun and the washington post did you know jack germond by any chance that man from like the the mclear anyway (laughs) (laughs) always loved him he was like looked like such a curmudgeon i was like (laughs) that's a journalist yeah Um, and so, so is the journalist sitting across from me here today um so your writing practice though so you must have like you've got a relationship to writing, yeah, um, and, and drafting. Yeah, and... I'm a big draft writer. Um, I feel like my writing practice probably most cohered when I was writing reviews. Just really, I did in an intense way for the Washington Post the first time, and you know, I'd go to a performance, I'd come home at ten, and I was supposed to file by noon the next day. So the most important thing was to have something to send in at noon. So really being like, well, I'll just sit down and write what I can. And and so I have something. And I always sort of feel like, well, once I have something, I have faith I can make it better. Sometimes I can't. But, you know, like you keep coming back to it and you keep. So in that way, I really think of writing as a practice. Um, and I think I do my best writing when I'm writing regularly. And that was really important in writing the book, like. I'm not one of those people who can write every day, but I really do try to write a lot. I have to be in the practice of it to do it. So even if it's not every day, you're sort of making making space for it. For sure, yeah. And coming back to drafts, I still, I keep trying to stop this, but I write drafts and then I print them out and I revise on paper, which turns out badly sometimes. I left a bunch of notes on a plane from Mexico this summer that I'm still sad about. So it turns out you can lose paper too. But um, yeah, but there's something about moving between writing on the computer and handwriting that I think remains really important for me. I can't just write on the computer. I don't, I don't know if it's different neural pathways turn on or something, but, but yeah, I move between handwriting and computer writing and that's really important and I just love playing with words I mean that's the other thing I think review writing teaches you is I had 250 words to review performance which is crazy um but wow do you get really excited about like finding the perfect word and would you write would you write long and then take it down Claire or does it it sounds like so Walk us through one of your, like your your drafts, because you're saying the perfect word, but maybe that doesn't come right away. No, definitely not. Um, I love verbs. Yes. Writing about dance, I think you have to love <laughs> verbs, and so I love come like 
finding new verbs. And I really, when I'm drafting, I definitely start with verbs. I mean, A, to get passive voice to go away, but also to get the perfect word to get some sense. I mean, you never capture dance in writing, but the best translation is what I'm sort of looking for. And to kind of know that already, but know that you're up for this, like, being game to try to find the right word. Yeah, I think, like, writing for me is a space of play, which I try to talk to my students a lot about when I teach writing in the classroom, is, like, to be sort of playful and to think there's always multiple options. And there are, aren't yeah, there? I mean, yeah. it, it can almost be maddening if you go <laughs> like, yeah. too far in that direction. But it, it seems like so many people think the sentence is, I'm building it as I go, and then it's there. Yeah. Instead of... And I know, like, drafts. I have friends who are amazing writers who really, like, go word by word, and they really, I didn't do find the perfect word each time, and I'm so amazed by them. You know, I just like get something down on the page and then just keep coming back to it and back to it. And and it's also like a way of thinking, too, because it's sort of like in the process of writing, I sometimes find out what I really meant to say. Yeah, that's when, you know, I think the writing's alive and it's it's good work. Yeah. And that's when it starts to feel like real scholarship for me when I'm really getting at something. It's also how I find out more about the piece I saw writing as a way to understand it at a deeper level and to sort of force myself to think to think with more depth which I hope on the good days is a way of honoring honoring all the depth that the choreographers and the performers brought to the performance it seems like it is I mean I hope so I'm sure I've written horribly about people's <laughs> dancing before too so or you know they're like wait what? what? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, let's think. Let's. Well, anyway, I think you're just very modest then. Um, but also, like, maybe noting something about being in the world and knowing that that's all right, too, because that's also part of figuring things out. Yeah. Right? The, yeah. And, and it's part of the writing. And, and maybe that leads you to something that's more... Um, I don't know particular or what or what you really want your vision. Yeah, I mean, I think my writing often has. I mean, it's sort of the same process thing a lot of people describe. Like you write and write and write, and finally the last couple of sentences you write are like, oh, that's like the real. That's the real idea. I mean, it's like putting that story at the end of chapter four and then realizing that it's actually the introduction to the book because also it contains. A lot of the major ideas of the of the whole book, you know, the sense of that something else was happening in that space of live performance, some kind of connection, even as there were also extreme differences in the moment. And by no means is that sort of moment of connection then something we can take to mean that, well, everyone in the space was having the same experience and having the same sense of connection, that difference doesn't fall away in moments of connection. And that's really important to think about. Difference doesn't fall away in moments of connection. It doesn't erase it. It's like the point of connection or the um, what matters about connection isn't that things fall away. It's just that a connection is, is created. Yeah, because the goal is never... 
well, I think the American government goal might be <laughs> increasing similarity, mm. but I'm fascinated that even with sort of the goal of perhaps homogeneity, that heterogeneity persists. Mm. So, Claire, with the the writing of the book, how you you mention sort of the the I, maybe part of the the vision for the book happened. Um, after September 11th, 2001. So what about the, the making of the book? What was, how, I guess in practical terms, if that's possible in the practice of writing, when did you start interviewing? When did you start revising for, for dancers as diplomats? Yeah, um, well, it was my dissertation. So while I was in grad school, I wrote several shorter papers largely about particular performances that I knew were on these tours. And I started doing some interviewing work during that time. But really, um, I had this fantasy that I was going to like drive around the U.S. interviewing these dancers all over, and then I would have my own like little tour, uh, you know, and have this, this notion of traveling was something I was really taken with. That's not exactly how it worked out in the end. Um, well, there was that big chunk of time in Arkansas. Yeah, there was that. <laughs> or returning yeah. to Arkansas. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, the travel was really fascinating. The first interview I did that I really knew was for the book was with um, a woman named Nadine Ravine who lived in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And so I flew from Texas to Baltimore and rented a car and drove out to Lancaster, which is this sort of like super cute little Pennsylvania town. Lots of cows even, right? On the Lots. outskirts. My memory is like green yeah. fields and red <laughs> barns. I mean, talk about sort of the drive to like talk to someone about America. And Completely. she, like so many of the dancers, was incredibly generous and talked about her time in the Soviet Union. She was teaching ballet in Lancaster at the time, and we sat in this little coffee shop in Lancaster, and she talked to me for, like, three hours. I didn't know people would be um, so happy to talk. But one of the things that I feel like most people don't get listened to, and so the notion of, you know, someone asking you to tell your story... Is I mean, I don't even want to be too romantic about it or sort of fetishize that moment. But at the same time, it was exciting to show up and say, I really want to hear your story about this particular moment. And it was really fascinating what people told me. And you can feel it when it's genuine, this moment. Yeah, yeah. And then when we really like slip into a true conversation, even though I'm trying to stay really quiet when I do interviews, I try to stay really quiet. I want, I want the other person to talk. Amen, sister. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking with me today, though, Claire. This has been great. Thanks so much for having me. This is fantastic. We'll come back anytime. Absolutely. Anytime. Um, today on Living Writers, you've been listening to Claire Croft. Her book, Dancers as Diplomats, American Choreography in Cultural Exchange. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time. We are a nation with no geographic boundaries, bound together through our beliefs. We are like-minded individuals, sharing a common vision, pushing toward a world rid of color lines.
CBN-FM, FM Ann Arbor. Es el tiempo de la explosión banda. Mis labios besando tus labios, no sé, piénsalo. Tú y este sábado bien infestados, no sé, piénsalo. Tú y yo tomando en la misma botella, pasando a la gusto sin tener atracción. Sigue tu instinto, sentirás bonito, por favor, ya no me la hagas de emoción. Piénsalo. Me gusta este gusto, pa' que no Resumir, pero soy buena opción Bonita pareja haríamos que yo Piénsalo Y suena y suena MS chiquitita Tú y yo en el rancho montando a caballo No sé, piénsalo Tú y yo no cenaba con las estrellas, no sé, piénsalo Tú y yo tomando en la misma botella, pasando al abuso, sintiendo atracción Sigue tu instinto, sentirás bonito, por favor, ya no me la hagas de emoción Piénsalo Piénsalo 